Welcome into this edition of the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. I'm Lav, soon to be joined by Rex. In this one, we're going to be talking about John Rahm taking care of business as he should have in Mexico. Talk about Greg Norman's latest comments about his live golf venture, including his claim that 30% of the world's top 50 had committed to the league before Phil Mickelson detonated the whole thing. And we'll talk about where Rex is. That is the Wells Fargo Championship held this year outside D.C., not in Charlotte at Quell Hollow Club, which is host of this year's President's Cup. And we'll talk about our expectations for Roy McIlroy, the defending champion, and what will be his first event uh, since the Masters, knowing Rex and his infatuation with Roy, surely he will predict global domination. Uh, but first... Callaway's Rogue ST drivers are their fastest, most stable drivers ever. Their industry-leading innovations include an all-new tungsten speed cartridge for increased speed, stability, and forgiveness. The jailbreak speed frame also provides stability for even more speed across the face, and an AI-designed flash face promotes lower spin and increased forgiveness. These drivers have won in back-to-back weeks on tour for Xander Schauffele at the Zurich Classic, and of course, for John Rahm at the Mexico Open on Sunday. Go to CallawayGolf.com now to find the driver for you. Rex, uh, we're going to get uh, into your COVID uh, hell. Uh, I do want to start on a personal note. So I finally got some pictures back from my round at Augusta National. And since I just read that Callaway uh, read, nice. I have to say, I got some snaps of myself at impact position. And it is absolutely yeah. horrifying. There was zero hip clearing. There was, there was casting on the way down. I'm not sure what my lead leg is doing. You know how you're supposed to, the, to post up against your front leg? It is like, it, it looks like I'm trying to skateboard. Like it is, it is just horrible, which certainly explains why I rinse too uh, on the 12th hole. But I'm not sure I'm ever going to play golf again. The, the pictures were that horrifying. Like it needed, it needed like a, a, a not suitable for work warning it needed an nc-17 tag uh it needed a viewer discretion advised Do, does my swing really look that bad uh i would say no but i mean why don't we take some of those pictures and give them to the experts Let, let's ship them off to brandle and see how he can he can mark those up and if indeed you aren't clearing if indeed you're not posting which posting is a big part of power so i don't get how you're not doing that at all i, I i've never really i don't think i've ever looked at your swing and thought yeah I've always kind of looked at your swing. No, I, I thought, it, I mean, you get an impressive amount of power out of you. You're not a particularly big guy. So I don't know where you're getting these ideas. I think you're probably being overly critical. It might have something to do with the canvas, right? Like so if you draw the, you know, the clown nose on the Mona Lisa, you're like, oh yeah, that doesn't fit whatsoever. You with the clown nose on the Augusta National Mona Lisa. No, I mean, like I've, I've seen, I've seen some snaps before where, you know, I kind of lose my, my, my posture, I, I kind of lose my address position. It kind of looks like I'm standing up at the ball uh, and doing something to it, um, uh, which is sort of graphic uh, in, in, in it's nature. A donkey. It's a donkey that you're talking it about. Is. Yeah. It, it is. It, yeah. it is, absolutely. And so I've been working all morning uh, in my office about working uh, on my backswing <laughs> to get a little bit more turn with the lower body. Because if you load up on the lower body on your backswing and you're at the top, like you literally have to, you have to turn and clear. It's, it's impossible to make a swing from there. You're feeling strain in your hip. You're feeling strain in your hamstring. Like you have to, to go ahead and fire. Now, all of this, this, this swing rehearsal and this training means nothing uh, because, of course, I'm not going to go hit balls. Uh, I'm certainly not going to, <laughs> to not. work on it. I'm not going to play golf. Uh, we, we might not even play golf, Rex, uh, during the Open Championship. We either, either preceding it uh, during the Scottish Open or during the week, we're gonna at play St. Golf. Andrews, which is we'll which play is horrible. Golf. No, 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 we'll play golf. Are we? Are you? Are you? Are you? You gonna bring your clubs now? Uh, my wife is going with me. We're going. We're gonna tour the north at the week afterwards. So it's gonna make for uh, awkward packing in those little tiny cars. But there's no way I'm going to be literally drive by the entrance to the Royal Dornick and not have my golf clubs with me. That doesn't happen. What's your wife's motivation for going to Scotland? Who says, who says, uh, hey, let's go to Scotland and not play golf? Uh, well, this one kind of came out of nowhere because normally she likes to, to travel. Like she went to Paris with me for the Ryder Cup and we, we thoroughly That's enjoyed Paris. that. Of course, know. everyone likes to go to Paris. Right. She went to Australia in 2019 for the President's Cup. We it's Australia, of course. That. Of course. This one came out of nowhere. And, and I tried. 
I mean, this had to be full disclosure, right? I mean, I have to, I have to give her all the small print right up front that the food's not going to be great. And I hate to stereotype the entire country, but yes, the food's not going to be great. The weather. How do you like your steak? I like going. it gray, please. Yes. Can I have extra gray with my steak, please? Uh, the weather's probably not going to be very great. Um, I can keep going down the list. The accommodations, like as she has gone through this and been like, well, no, it says four stars. And I'm like, well, four stars in Scotland. You're still not, not well, going to have AC. The, uh, the comforter is going to be scratchy. Uh, you're probably not going to have warm water. But yeah, four stars for sure. It's, 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 it's basically sure. the Ritz. It's basically the Ritz in Scotland. Yes, and I don't know how what your feelings are on drinking, you know, any kind of beverage without ice. To get used to that, like I've tried, like all the things that we joke and we kid about that are true because they, you know, it's funny because it's true, and none of them seem to, you know, dissuade her from wanting to do this. So I don't know what else to do. I mean, she's she's going to do this. She's now St. Andrews. She's going to come for the weekend at the open and kind of hang out, and I think she will enjoy that because the town during she the just, open. She just wants she just is, wants to go drink at the Dunbeg. I don't I don't blame her. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you and I are working, so we'll be staying in the dorms. You and I will be sleeping in very, very poor accommodations. We'll be trudging every day to the old course. Please, everyone, feel sorry for us. But yes, she'll be drinking at the Dunbegin and hanging out with the locals and making friends. Boy, I wish I wish I could I wish I could miss the cut at the open and and just drink with your wife uh, at the Dunbegin. That sounds much more. That sounds that sounds actually much better than what we're going to be doing. Not gonna lie. We'll live like we'll live vicariously. I mean, I'm sure we'll get all the stories about how much fun she's, she's <laughs> going to have. She's having. But no, no, I even think that week, uh, you and I have a mutual friend that's actually a member of Crail who clued me in to. I think we'll be able to play Crail, and so I think we'll end up getting more golf than we think right now. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and yeah, excellent. Uh, I wanted to. So that was my personal story. Uh, yours, uh, I have turned <laughs> off the video function for this podcast not because uh, i think you're ugly uh but because of internet connection but i must say you look better than when we teed it up last week uh on this podcast you did not look good uh you sure as hell did not sound good i predicted that you had covid and did just and, and just did not know it yet did that prediction turn out to be correct well, and here's the, here's the disclosure on this one. You and I like to lean into the funny, and, and I think that's why I enjoyed the podcast so much. And, and we, we like to have fun, and let's all have fun around there. This, this isn't a laughing matter. I know that, that, that you cannot joke about COVID. However, what happened is I woke up Sunday morning. I was in New Orleans. I was covering the event, and I had a sore throat, and I was a little achy. So I immediately went to the Walgreens right there off of Bourbon Street, which that's got to be legit, right? I mean, if it's right off of Bourbon Street, it's got to be a real – Walgreens and so I took a test and it came back negative so I did try to do what I thought was the right thing to do I went to work woke up flew home the next morning wore the mask by the way because I knew that well this can't be right uh, I did fly home I thought about driving home that's 12 hours in that car and I didn't have that in me mm, if I'm being nope. honest and I, I you, would rather, next, you would rather you would rather just infect the entire plane go on uh, and spent the next two and a half days in, in bed the only time I got out of bed was to, to muscle through that rider's block and and the podcast so don't ever accuse me of not playing her because as you saw me i had a sweater on on my back porch and i was i had the chills when we started the podcast and i was sweating profusely by the time when we got done so it was not it was not enjoyable i have been symptom free since wednesday and uh, i'm feeling much much better there, there is a little bit of I, it's added a bassy tone to my voice i just did a did a golf today hit that i, I was pretty impressed with because i'm kind of I a little well done yeah yeah, a little little bassy tone to it. I can lean into it a little bit more, like I like I did before. I, I like it. I, I think I might stick with this. A little smoky. No. I mean, we are we are not certainly making light uh, of the COVID situation. No, we're nearing no. we're nearing uh, one million deaths uh, in the U.S. But it is an absolutely bizarre virus because I had COVID, did not know it, felt completely fine, and then I think I think as I mentioned on this podcast a couple of weeks ago is before the players championship. I literally could not squeeze anything. Like I, I couldn't walk down the stairs. Uh, my joints were incredibly stiff and it was horrible. And the, the reason why I bring that up, our job is to either talk or to uh, tap away on laptops and, and trying to write a 3,500 word feature on Patrick Cantley while not being able to bend your fingers uh, was incredibly difficult but other than that i felt totally fine didn't have a headache didn't have a fever didn't have uh anything else i just had like joint stiffness to the point that i thought that i was having some sort of uh neurological uh disorder so i'm glad you didn't have that uh, i'm not so glad that 
you spent basically the entire week uh, in bed. You are now able to cover this week's Wells Fargo Championship uh, outside D.C. As I mentioned, uh, it is not at Wells, at, at, excuse me, at Quail Hollow Club, Quail. which is going to be hosting uh, this year's President's Cup. I think that's a bummer uh, because you look at this uh, stretch that we've had on the PGA Tour ever since Scotty Scheffler won at the Masters. It's been some lean there's been some lean fields, uh, haven't been the most uh, exciting golf tournaments. I think that this is certainly one of those tournaments where the elite players are looking at and they're circling it if they want to have kind of a, a major type tune-up uh, before the next major championship. You look certainly at the Wells Fargo Championship at Quell Hollow, just like you look at the Memorial Tournament uh, at Jack's Place before the U.S. Open. Now kind of the Scottish Open, right, has assumed that place as kind of the, the precursor uh, to the final major championship of the year uh, for the open championship. What's kind of the, the vibe this week. It's not a great field. Roy McIlroy, just uh, the single top 10 player uh, in the world, but it's certainly better than last week's Mexico open. No, I think it is. And to your point, I think guys are getting ready for what's going to be a very busy stretch. You just pointed out, we have uh, the PGA coming up in just a few weeks. We have colonial right after that, which is a lot of guys play you have Memorial, and then you start getting in, to the U.S. Open. So I just think it's we're in the lull of the season. I don't think it has anything to do with the events this week or last week. I think it just has to do with guys have to take time off in this particular case. To your point, and I found this fascinating, I was talking with Stuart Sink doing some reporting this morning, and he compared TPC Potomac to Mirfield Village based on the idea that it is a demanding test. And if you go back to 2017, TPC Potomac ranked as the most difficult golf course on tour, non-major division that season even in 2018 when francesco ran away from the field with a 21 under record total it's still ranked in the top third of degree of difficulty on the pga tour so it's it, it has that major championship feel now the fact you're across the street from congressional that's always you know you're the kid mm. brother and you're, all, and you're kick, always that's yeah. just a kick in the groin yes it'd be like me driving by rural Dornick without having the golf clubs in the back of the little tiny rental car so in this particular case, I will say this, and this is no scouting report whatsoever, but driving here this morning past uh, Congressional, there is so much construction over there. I know they're getting ready for big things, major championships and everything, but there's a massive building going up on the far side of the range. There's construction all over the golf course. You can see they're building other like real brick-and-mortar infrastructure-type buildings. It's, uh, it's going to be fun to go back there because you don't realize how much you miss Congressional until you're right next to it. I mean, Congressional... Uh, I think it's slated to host like what the 2047 U.S. Open, something like that. I know they've got a Ryder Cup in like 2037. PGA Maybe in a, there? I felt like there's a PGA in there. Uh, there is a PGA. Uh, 2031. Uh, you'll you'll be uh, long gone by then. There is a women's. It, oh. it is the host. It is the host of the women's PGA Championship, which is probably why you saw uh, so much uh, construction going on that tournament. Uh, is in about six or seven weeks. Uh, so certainly they're making some final preparations for that. One of the uh, five uh, LPGA majors of the season, always a great test uh, at Congressional. As I mentioned at the top of the pod, Roy's talking uh, on Wednesday in D.C. That'll be your first crack at him uh, since you are the central reporter uh, this week. But this is the first time we've seen him in nearly a month uh, since his backdoor runner-up finish at Augusta National Final round, 64, bogey-free. He came out and said, uh, you know, he thinks he found something. Everyone's talked about how he's unlocked Augusta National. Uh, what are your, I guess, expectations for Rory after a month away, and how much do you think that Masters performance can actually be a springboard for him? You can see when I, I go on mute, correct? You know, Yes, I can, so I can see button. it, and that's when I, that's when I start uh, going around in circles, adding unnecessary Checking words. It. Doing yep. a little, doing a little dance. Yes, yeah. so yep. I'm making it more difficult for you. Yeah. So sorry about that. Just I wanted to make sure that you just didn't toss it to me, right when I hit the mute button because I'm coughing up uh, a pause uh, in advance. Uh, yes, yes. It's not, uh, it's not great for the crew. I, I have followed all the protocols. By the way, I want to, I want to, can't stress that enough that I follow all the protocols and that I, it's fine me being back at work, uh, and and so that's not going to be an issue. Uh, when, when did you, Rory, did you wear, did you wear a mask on the plane? I did. You know, was, and you probably saw this going to the Bahamas. I'd be curious to your feedback on it. And I was a little self-conscious because I had to wear a mask. I wouldn't have felt – same thing Monday flying home from New Orleans. Uh, but I, I wasn't comfortable doing that. Uh, so I was, but I was a little worried. Am I going to be the only guy on the plane? You know, is everyone going to be shooting me that look? 
and I think about 30, 30% of the plane had masks on. Wow. I'm like, oh, okay. Really? Yeah, no, I, oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, keep in mind, I flew from Orlando to LaGuardia yesterday and LaGuardia to D.C., so it might be the market. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, it cer- yeah, it certainly could be the market. I've Yeah, I flew to uh, the Bahamas last week. I was probably 5 to 10% among those uh, who were masked on the plane. I don't mask in the airport, but I mask on the plane. As I've mentioned probably several times in this podcast, I get repeated head colds uh, while flying in the only thing that I've, has made that disappear is wearing a mask. I'll probably wear one until the end of time. Uh, I'll be I'll be the last I'll be the I'll, I'll be the last one on earth uh, who is is wearing a mask. Uh, Bahamas, you have to wear a mask everywhere, everywhere inside. It was oh, wow. uh, like like twenty twenty uh, all over again. And so there was nothing more fun huh? than wearing a mask uh, in this teeny tiny airport in Georgetown, Bahamas. Uh, where it was 85 degrees and humid with two kids under three. If you want an adventure, uh, do that. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not quite the man uh, that I thought I was. Uh, so it's good to hear that that you uh, followed all the health and safety uh, protocols. Please uh, continue with your Rory discussion. And you're a massive germaphobe. We have all learned that over the course of the pandemic, as well as other. I th- isn't I, I isn't just, isn't everyone now like? Don't you look at things differently? No. Like, I, no, you don't. I think we all do. You're a germaphobe. I think we all look at things differently. Absolutely. Our perspective has changed. But you are a massive germaphobe. I mean, just to be only, clear only, I would say only in recent years, and especially now that I've discovered that masking on an airplane can prevent a head cold, which has always been just a massive pain for me. Because then, okay, so I fly, I go cover a tournament for a week, and I feel terrible for half of the weeks I got this head cold from the plane. Yeah, I'm not – I mean – Again, the mandate has been changed ever since I'm dealing with COVID. So I, I'm still wearing a mask. However, I'm looking forward to the time when I don't have to wear a mask on a plane. And I think the people, like I said, the 70%, 75% on the planes last night seem to be very, very happy and very content with their decision. So I mean, you're, I basically, know, you're basically Superman now. You've had like seven shots. Uh, you've had at least two infections from COVID. <laughs> you, were, you were invincible. I feel invincible. I, I absolutely do. Now, after last week, if you'd asked me last week, I would not. I, I think the part that I'm most curious about asking Rory is, is one, going into Sunday's round at Augusta, were there different vibes than maybe what you felt in recent years going into Sunday? Was it just as simple as, I've got no chance to win, so just go out there and shoot yes. as low as I can? Yes. That's what it felt like. Yes, and, and that's, again, that's, that's definitely in, what it was. I'm in the bag. I think I was probably the first one to to look at that leaderboard when he started going on his tear on Sunday and rolled my eyes. Like, of course he's going to play well today. Of course, of all days. Of all Sundays for him to play well, he's going to do it now when he has absolutely zero chance and he'll get the backdoor top 10. And 10 years from now, we'll be talking about, ah, another missed opportunity for Rory when in fact there was no chance whatsoever. And, and the other thing that I would like to ask him is what? I mean, he said he found a little something. What was it? And how can you fast forward that three weeks since the last time you teed it up? Because that's always curious to me. And again, I started this podcast saying that guys can't play every week. You have to, it's understandable. But how can you carry something over that you found on Sunday at Augusta to Thursday at TPC Potomac? I don't know how you do that. And look, like Rory's had a very good year. And of course, in the fall, he said that he found something uh, on Sunday at the Ryder Cup where you know, he felt so much pressure. And then he just wanted to go back and being kind of instinctual and get back to, to his golf. And that was going to be good enough. And that was great. And that kind of swing thought. Uh, and feeling kind of carried him for three or four months. Then he has kind of, I don't know, necessarily petered out uh, is, is the right term, but he, you know, he hasn't played as well, I guess you could say over the past two months, but statistically, like he's still a very good player. He's top five, top 10 uh, in strokes gained T degree and strokes gained total on the PG tour. He does a lot of things very, very well. The only thing he has not done since the fall in the CJ cup was add a victory uh, to his resume. It has been Rex kind of a weird year or a weird season for the superstars. You've had, you know, kind of Cam Smith uh, being emergent. You've had Scotty Scheffler, obviously elevate his game uh, to the world number one level, but until the past month and in this past month, we've, we've rattled off Scotty, then Spieth, then uh, Patrick Cantlay and Zander Schauffele and now John Rahm in Mexico, it feels like the game's top players are finding that gear. Would they have loved to find that gear about a month ago ahead of the Masters? Uh, certainly. But look, 
these three months are what's going to find all of these elite players uh, years, their seasons. Uh, and there's little reason to believe that Rory, uh, like most of the top 10 players in the world is not capable of ripping off two, three, four wins here uh, in this next upcoming stretch. And I don't think you and I had this discussion last week about John Rahm. That what do you need to see out of him this week? Well, I didn't need to see a win out of him last week. Cause I think anytime you say something like that, we're dismissing how difficult it is to win and how, when you do win on the PGA tour, it's a big deal. And I don't care if it is against the field. It's probably not as strong as what you're going to face week in and week out. So it was actually do it. it. That was a, that was an atrocious field. It was 32, 32 world ranking points uh, to the winner. It was, it was essentially a, just a slight notch above an opposite field event uh, on the PGA tour. John Rom should have been able to beat that field. And he uh, I'm not doing, I'm not going that far. He did. He should have. He was a prohibitive favorite. And here's what you missed on, and here's what, very good, think twice. I was going to give you a second time turn on that. I, I was actually going to three turns and then rivalry. Uh, and I will say this, I missed you on Monday for writer's blog. Brentley fell in and he did a very, very good job. I will water, say and, water and vinegar, you two on that one. Go ahead. Uh, we had a good time. And you know what he said to me afterwards and he goes, I just wanted to defer to you. And I was like, well, why would you do that? Like, because here's the deal. You That's and I foolish. know. Nothing, nothing. That's they, foolish. They, you and I know how this works. Like if they want 10 to 12 minutes famously. You're not happy with that. I know we don't have to get into conversation with that for those riders block and four questions I've discovered between you and I, that's 10 to 12 minutes. That's easily 10 to 12 minutes because both of us start talking and we start blowharding. And then you, you get on a rant about grills and I get on a rant about COVID and something. It always seems to come rap, up. So I don't rap, know, you bozos. Rap. What are you talking about? <laughs> Poor Haley with the headline button. Can't get us to stop talking. Uh, and so I only did four questions and it wasn't enough because he kept, he would only go so far. And afterwards, and I'm like, Hey man, we're paid to talk. Like that, that's what we're supposed to do here. I know that it was very, very kind. And, and I see what you're trying to do there, but Defer- let, and, and, def- and deferring and deferring to you is, is, is just idiotic. Giving, giving you an, an open runway with no challenge. That's not, that's not what, that's not what the people want. That's not what the people want. Certainly not what our editors want. So I, we'll do it again. I, I told them next time, just bring it. If we end up yelling at each other, that, that even makes for a better little tiny TV. But I, I, the point that I was making is it made me realize how good when you break down the differences between top players. So if you break down the difference between John Rahm and Roy McIlroy, if you ask me which one is the better ball striker, well, we're just kind of mixing here, aren't we? Well, no, not really. Because you start to realize how good John Rahm, off the tee at least, actually is that he has found all of this value in this particular margin that the other margins don't seem to matter. Cause I said he needed a good putting week. I said, well, actually what I said was he needed an average putting week and that's where he finished. He finished I said, I wanted to, I think I, wa- I said, I wanted to see encouraging signs with this putting. And, and that's what it was. I'll give you, can give you that. So 19 strokes, but on Saturday and Sunday, he lost strokes to the field on the greens. And so it gives you an idea of exactly how dominant he is off the tee and with his irons to, to a, a bit of a lesser degree that when he's able to do it again, understandably, agreeably against a lesser field, I don't want to take anything away from the win, but it is according to the world ranking, a lesser field. I didn't expect him to win, but for him to have done that is even more impressive in my mind. And, and I know you're going to dismiss the field, but I still think there is something to be said for, Oh, I'm supposed to win here. That's added pressure. And I'm, I don't doubt that he felt that, but he seems to deliver despite that. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And look, the, the, the field no, is what, what it is. However, I'm, I'm most interested, Rex, in how he has taken his, his driving to the next level. He has always been uh, an exceptional driver of the golf ball, but he is, he is far and away <laughs> the best driver of the golf ball on the PJ Tour, not to get too deep, in the numbers here, but he is averaging 1.3 strokes gained per round off the tee. That is Bryson-esque. I mean, that's, that's actually what, what Bryson was doing uh, over these past couple of years. And we still have a couple months uh, to go in the PJ tour season. But if Ron were to continue that pace, he would have surpassed what Bryson was doing off the tee in 2020 and 2021, which is unthinkable, right? Like you think of a guy bashing it, 340, 350, and how he's he's cutting some of these PGA Tour courses down to size, that that's the biggest advantage. But Rahm is doing it uh, with top 10 length. He's averaging 316 off the tee, and he's accurate. He's hitting 65% of the, 
of the fairways, that doesn't sound great. He's certainly not going to challenge Fred Funk uh, in a driving accuracy contest, but you just don't see that, that, that mix and match, that combination of accuracy and length uh, that you do with John Rahm. And that's why it portends so well for the PGA Championship. Certainly Southern Hills is a very difficult golf course. It certainly portends well uh, for the country club and his title defense uh, at the U.S. Open. I mean, a guy who can who can hit it on a who could hit it on a thread uh, with all of the, his other myriad gifts, including his toughness, uh, his his iron play. Yes, his short game and his putting has been a little bit spotty. And certainly, don't ask him about it. Uh, and as we saw on the weekend, it almost cost him uh, at the Mexico Open. But 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 he he has he has long been to me the best player in the game. And if you're picking one guy. It's it's not Rory who over these next couple months can can get hot and nab you know two majors in a FedEx Cup. To me, to me, it's John Rahm. He he wasn't really able to build off how he was playing last summer, uh, but it seems like he's certainly trending in that direction once again to get to get super hot and just blow the rest of the fields away. Well, and we did the thing with uh, you know with Brantley on Monday talking about well is he the favorite now or. Scotty Scheffler, the favorite of the PGA. I would put those two 1A and 1B, and I'm not quite sure which is which, to be honest with you, because everything we've seen from Scotty indicates I don't know why I would, anyone would think that, oh, he's at the end of this run. I mean, there's no indication whatsoever that he's cooling but off. Runs, runs do end. I mean, he's not going to continue to end, like this forever. I, well, you say that, but I don't know why we would think there would be any indication to think, okay, this is coming to an end. Yeah, like he didn't, he didn't, he didn't lose his game all there. of a sudden in like the backyard of of his Dallas mansion. Like that's not how that's not how it works. No, so I would still put those two one A and one B, and then you know you can fill in the, the list afterwards. But what we do know about Southern Hills is you're absolutely right. Now, the one thing I will say about John Rahm's driving, and you're right, first on tour in strokes gained driving by a long shot. I mean, he is way out in front, not just by a little bit. But I, he has played some golf courses that lend themselves to easier driving courses. I'll think of Palm Springs. I think of Scottsdale is a pretty easy driving course. My guess is last week, by all indications, the resort, resort course. course oh, yeah. You go out there. Yeah, I, um, Howie would be on that list. And again, a pretty easy driving course. I, I don't want to take anything away from him, but I am curious that when we get to what technically should be the year's first driving test, right? That's Southern Hills. That's when hitting fairways counts. I would be curious to see if it translates. If it continues to translate to that, I think you said 1.3 strokes per round off the tee, man, that's hard to beat. Even if he's not putting well, that's hard to beat. I mean, anything, one or more in any statistical category, whether it's off the tee, approach, around, or or putting, is is crazy good. You know, Kyle Morikawa kind of lives in that area, uh, approaching the greens. Certainly Cam Smith on around the greens is kind of living in that uh, one point. Uh, per or excuse me, one stroke per round uh, area, and, for, and so for John Rom to have made, the, you know, there's, there's, his swing looked exactly the same as when it first came out on the PG Tour, but he has made incremental improvements on what was already one of his strengths, and to, and to do it uh, in an era where where driving is is rewarded now uh, more than ever uh, is certainly impressive. And the arrow pointed right back up for John Rom. His next start, as we mentioned, will be. Uh, at the PGA Championship. Rex, I wanted to get your take on something that came out on Monday in an interview with our buddy, Mark Schleybaugh, over at ESPN, Greg Norman. Uh, He says many things, and he had yet another interview here, and he said kind of what we all uh, suspected, and that was that Phil Mickelson's comments, yes, it damaged uh, the upstart league that Greg Norman and Live Golf was trying to put together. He said that the startup league was set to launch the week of the Genesis Invitational. That, of course, was the same week that Mickelson's bombshell interview with the Fire Pit Collective came off, in which he disparaged not just the Saudis, but also the obnoxious greed uh, of the PGA Tour. That, to me, was not the biggest takeaway. Of course, uh, it was going to hurt uh, the startup league. To me, what was more interesting was that Norman said that 30%, or that'd be about 15 players, uh, among the top 50 were committed prior to those comments and that some of these players are still committed and signed with this league and that they either had to give back the, mo- the, the monies that were clearly transferred into their account or they are still committed, which leads me to believe 
Rex, that Phil Mickelson uh, was one of those players. Why it should not be a surprise at all uh, to see him not just in the first event outside London, but potentially uh, he may be contractually obligated to do all eight of them if he was, as the Telegraph reported, uh, received $30 million up front. No, I, I would think so. I think that's a pretty safe assumption. And look, with, for lack of information here, we're, we're all going to start making stretches and guesses, but he seems to be the face. He seems to be the front man. Even before his comments, he was he seemed to be the face and the front man, even when he wasn't saying anything. And it's interesting going back to you and I both were in Los Angeles, and I remember you and I having these conversations. I believe it was the, the night I, I made you walk around uh, Marina Del Rey looking for a taco shop that didn't exist. Tuesday. But Tuesday. It, yeah, it was Tuesday. I, we were wow, it was an agonizing pain. Well, an agonizing pain with one of two root canals that was uh, forthcoming. You're good. Yeah, and you play hurt just like I do. See, see what we got going on there? We do I, was, I, was, I was through gritted teeth, and you were three months away uh, from being bedridden. That's right. Uh, but even that night, I remember you and I having a conversation about the idea. This is starting to feel real up until this point. It's always just been hushed innuendo and rumors and things that get whispered to you on the range. And this player's signed on and that player's signed on. And none of it ever seemed real to me. That Look, I knew there was going to come a time when the players were going to have to make a real choice because this was real money and they, they, they did have to choose. But L.A. was the week when it all seemed to start coming together. And I, I don't. I don't know that anyone can ever convince me that whatever it is that Phil did, and I don't have a clue what he did because he didn't burn down one bridge. He burned down both bridges and both houses and everything else in between. But he did it at such a time that I, I can't ignore the timing that Phil doesn't. So do you think you think it was a coordinated? You think it was a coordinated sabotage? I, I don't know because in this particular case, he went after both entities. And it is worth pointing out that in his apology, which was not an apology at all towards PGA Tour, he apologized to Liv Goff. And so there are some distinctions here that you would look at and say, well, of course he would apologize to Liv Goff because that's essentially his benefactor going forward. All of these rumors are true, and he indeed take, take, uh, ended up taking money like we're hearing and we're kind of insinuating right now. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't believe, again, I, I don't believe in coincidences when it comes to things like this. I believe, especially with Phil Mickelson, you and I both know him too well. He's too coordinated in everything he's always done in his career to just let this sort of lop out there in the public, to drop a, a bag full of crap in the middle of the sidewalk, right when no one wanted to see a bag full of crap in the middle of the sidewalk. I don't think it was Phil, because if you <laughs> look at Phil's comments, he's, he's thought that that conversation uh, with author and writer uh, Alan Shipnock was, was off the record. I don't think if he thought an off the record conversation should then be released three months later in order to, to sabotage this, this upstart league. To me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Instead, what I think is probably the logical uh, conclusion about what actually happened was that Alan Shipnuck got tipped off that, the, Hey, this thing uh, is about to get announced uh, this week yeah. with, with everything kind of coalescing. Hey, let's, let's kind of further the story. And here's what, what Phil actually uh, thinks about it in what was uh, never uh, before uh, heard comments or I guess uh, read read comments uh, regarding Phil Mickelson's true feelings towards that venture. To me, that is the more likely uh, scenario about what happened. Never, never mind the the timing. And look, I think that was kind of the uh, inflection point for the whole deal. And ever since, Norman and company have kind of been scrambling. First, they've they've kind of scrapped. The league concept that's been shelved until 2024. Now it's kind of play these as you wish. Uh, eight tournaments with huge purses, $20 million individually up for grabs, plus a $5 million team component. There's going to be a $50 million team championship uh, at Trump Doral uh, over Halloween. What's going to be interesting here, Rex, and this is kind of where I want to take this conversation, is we have some deadlines that are looming. We, the deadline to... Uh, apply for a conflicting event release has already come and go. Uh, but Jay Monahan and uh, the PJ Tour Brass has until May 10th, that is a week from today, in order to either green light or reject those waivers. Uh, I think the expectation, because of the precedent uh, with the Saudi International, as well as uh, several other uh, money grabs over the past couple of years, is those players, uh, that those releases will probably be, probably be granted. Where it gets interesting will be the second event, which will be held in Portland, Oregon, 
uh, before, or I guess it's over July 4th weekend. The deadline to submit uh, a waiver for that, a waiver release release for that, is May 17th. That is Tuesday of PGA Championship week. I'm sure there are going to be some crumbs dropped over who applied to those. And then what happens? Does the PGA Tour, because obviously that's going to show the PGA Tour brass, okay, these guys are committed to this. They want to go explore this further. Do you either suspend them or do you open up the the litigation floodgates uh, with Live Golf and all of their anti-competition losses? To me, that's the real deadline with May 17th uh, kind of being circled on the calendar. Well, you gave two options that are mutually exclusive. So suspend them and open up the legal floodgates. That's one thing happening. It, it, it's the way it plays out. So two things unfolded uh, this, just this morning talking with some folks on the range. And this, this was kind of funny because over the last few weeks, this has escalated to the point that every time you see someone on the range, and again, you sort of talk in whispered circles, and someone walked up to me, he would know, and goes, uh, did you hear how many guys have signed up? And right as I was saying 20, this person threw 70 at me. And I go, what is it? There's some sort of spinning wheel that you guys just spin every morning and be like, ah, and we're going to go with 70 today. Because it just keeps going up. There's no, in my mind, I find it impossible to think that 70 PGA Tour members have signed up to do this. But I guess there's a possibility, knowing kind of what we know now of how. For the London event? To shake. Yeah. He's saying 70 London from event. the London event. There's no way. Yeah. It's only a 48 player field. And so essentially you're, you have guys who are going to sign up that aren't going to get to play. And if that's the case, then they are doing this just to make a statement, which would be the only logical explanation that if, if it's only a 48 player field and you're, I mean, just to use a player that we know, Robert Garrett, who has is one of those 20 or 70 or however many there are, if there are 70, he's not getting into that field because Robert Garrett's status on the PGA tour is very iffy. And so my guess is of the 69 other players, he would probably fall behind them on that list to fill out the field. So at this point, it becomes I'm just making a statement and making sure the tour knows exactly where I am. Now, to your, your, your latter point, it's, yes, this first event in London, the precedent has long been set. Players chasing cash overseas is nothing new. The tour lets them do it. They get three a season. Uh, the commissioner does have some leeway there, but th- this has been – sort of established procedure for a long time. Where it gets interesting is you're right. That first live golf event in the United States at Pumpkin Ridge in Oregon, that's where it's going to come to a head. And in the same conversation this morning, I said it's kind of like the way I'm starting to feel about in Major League Baseball. When you have someone who's getting intentionally walked, and instead of just throwing the four pitches now and being silly about it, they just point to the base and can just go take the base. Let's be done with this. We don't have to throw four pitches. I'm intentionally walking you, just walk. In this particular case, can't we just get to what you insinuated? It's just, this is all going to a lawsuit. That's where this is going. I mean, the PGA Tour, Live Golf, has no interest in actually letting these guys play. In theory, they, they get to play three of these events and then three after the Tour Championship based on the PGA Tour regulations. That's not going to happen. The Tour can't allow that to happen, and Live Golf knows that, and so they're just waiting for that suspension to come. And then this venture will be followed by a lawsuit. So that's going to be very interesting. And just to button up a previous point, Norman uh, in the interview with ESPN said that there was more, more, uh, more than 200 registration requests. He did not say how many were from the PGA tour, but the number they keep floating around is 15 of the top 100 players in the world and two players uh, who were previously ranked number one, the one of those that we know uh, of course was, was Lee Westwood. Rex, where do you think that this is going to go? with the major championships you think about the timing of all of this as we mentioned may 17th is the deadline to submit uh, a request to play uh in the second event the one that's in the uh, in in oregon uh it would be a tournament that the pj tour per its guidelines would not be allowed to grant a release to that's going to potentially affect the pga championship the u.s open will be played a week after that first live golf event there is the potential if uh, PJ Tour members uh, apply for the waiver to play in the second event, uh, obviously get rejected and go play the tournament anyway, that those players could be subject to potential suspensions and or bans from the PJ Tour. How should, 
how should the majors react to this? If let's say a player gets suspended because he played in that sec in that second event in Oregon, should that player then be barred from playing in the open championship just a couple of weeks later? Should all of the majors do you, in your opinion, kind of unite, uh, kind of set up a collective front and say anyone associated with these leagues is not welcome here? I think there is something to be said for precedent here as well, that the major championships, uh, the RNA, the USGA, Augusta, and the PGA of America, they all follow the tour's lead when it comes to drug testing would be the example here. So if someone fails a drug test, and we've seen it, and they are suspended from the PGA Tour, those suspensions run over not only those, but they also run concurrent with all the other PGA Tours around the globe the European tour, all of the other professional tours around the globe. So in that theory, then yes, if there is a suspension on the PGA tour, you would follow suit. I guess my counter would be the chairman said at Augusta that Phil Mickelson was not disinvited, I believe is the word that he was asked and the word that he went with, and he's a lawyer. So if that's indeed the case, that Phil was not disinvited for whatever reason to the Masters this year, which there was a lot of speculation they would, why would the other major championships even want a piece of this fight? You just mentioned the golden word. At least the U.S. Open and the Open Championships are by definition opens. So anyone who may or may not have been suspended by the PGA Tour can go and try to qualify for those, independent of the PGA Tour. And if the U.S. Open and the USGA decide that, no, we're going to stand with the PGA Tour, they've now put their lot into whatever legal battle is going to come from this. And they've probably done it unnecessarily. Why not let this play out? If someone from these events, let's say Phil Mickelson being the perfect example, he's already qualified for all the majors uh, by way of his victory at the PGA Championship last year. If he decides to play all the majors and use all of those exemptions, why does the USGA or the RNA or anyone else want to get in that battle that is essentially going to be a PGA Tour battle? Yeah, I mean, essentially, their number one priority should be to avoid, <laughs> avoid being part of a lawsuit uh, at all costs. I guess the main point would be if you want to totally torpedo this effort with Greg Norman and company and live golf, it would be to shut out the players who, is, who are associated with this venture. That is the easiest way to get rid of this threat. They would have to do so presumably thinking that this is the best thing for the game of golf is to just have the PJ tour be the premier destination for the game's top players. And all these rival upstart leagues are, would be detrimental. That would be the belief that they would have to have. Do they share that belief? Uh, I'm not so sure. As you mentioned, specifically the last two majors of the year, those are open championships. Yes, they certainly have some criteria, uh, which I guess you could say uh, skews towards the PGA Tour. Like I'm like the U.S. Open, for instance, players who qualify for the Tour Championship uh, on the PGA Tour, those guys are automatically exempt into the Open Championship. Could you simply rewrite some of your criteria to keep out some of those live golf players probably that to me seems like a better option or maybe going away from the world ranking and just going off like FedEx cup points however you want to do it to me that is a better option than going with an outright ban like of saying you're suspended by the PGA tour you're you're not welcome here you're not you're not granted entry I just don't know. I mean, the PGA Tour, to a lesser degree, the DP World Tour, these are member organizations, and there's always going to be rules and regulations that can go along with that, and you just pointed out the key rules and regulations when it comes to this, that the PGA Tour book says you cannot get a conflicting event release for an event in North America. That's very, very easy. The USGA and the RNA and the PGA of America, at least when it comes to their major championships, are not member organizations. These are essentially events that you get invited to play or you qualify to play and you're right unless all of the major organizations decide to dramatically rewrite their entries and essentially their handbook which i just don't see them doing it because again you're they're opening themselves up to a legal problem that is squarely on the pga tour this has nothing to do at least right now with any of those organizations i don't think greg norman or live golf have any interest in going after the majors this was always about the pga tour so i i just don't see them welcoming that couldn't couldn't the majors argue that we don't want the we don't want the distraction? Of I would argue that let's say let's I mean let's say Phil Mickelson is 
doesn't want I guess it doesn't want the distraction of Phil Mickelson not being there. I would argue that Phil Mickelson not being there this year was a bigger distraction. But won't that like, eventually die see... down? I mean, the the player the players that we're talking about being rumored and connected to Live Golf uh, mm-hmm. are relevance is obviously a subjective term, uh, but most of these guys are has-beens and or largely irrelevant to the greater uh, landscape uh, professionally. Would those guys actually be missed? Like, would you miss a Lee Westwood, an Ian Poulter, or Sergio Garcia if they didn't show up at the U.S. Open or the Open Championship? Uh, no, not necessarily. And again, this goes to, I'm not talking about just banning all of them together. This has to go along with the, with the package of, in the context of two of those are Open Championships. And anyone, you and I, can go try to qualify for those Open Championships. And if Lee Westwood were to qualify, I just don't see either why the USGA would want to do that to keep him out and just staying with the PGA Tour. And two, it, it, the exposure. For the greater working. good, Rex. So you, for the greater good. For the greater good of professional golf. Is, yes, is that the that, argument that, that's, that's what their argument would be. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess they could, yes. Yes. Now that's going to be a difficult argument. And again, that one's going to get challenged in court. And I'll go back to my original assessment that why do they want that shade? Like this isn't our shade. This is the PGA tour shade. Uh, I do. I certainly agree with that. I I think it's just going to, that's to me the the most compelling question. That is the easiest way to thwart this challenge is to have some sort of united front. And I also think that golf's five families have never been closer than they are right now. A lot of this was spurred on by the pandemic, the USGA, the RNA, Augusta National, PGA of America. They all had to come together, DP World Tour, all had to come together to have a kind of collaborative process to piece together a schedule in 2021 and how to deal with the pandemic. Ever since then, there seems to have been better cooperation, uh, more unity among all of these various entities, which you know prior to that had kind of acted selfishly and in their own best interest it'll be curious to see and very interesting to see rex whether that carries over to what kind of is an existential threat to the pga tour and kind of the the lifeblood for professional golf that we see 48 other weeks of the year when the major championships aren't are dominating aren't dominating the discussion i would say for sure it's an existential threat i don't think there's ever been i mean this is a disruptor and those aren't always good things. I mean, I guess you would argue in business that there's always going to be someone that's looking to disrupt your particular business model. In this particular case, I don't know that there's ever been a looming threat so large and so real. I, I made the argument the week of New Orleans that there's nothing that gets the commissioner on a private plane to have him fly to New Orleans to talk to. The two players I saw him talking to were Robert Garrigus and Ian Poulter. And no disrespect to either one of those guys, but those are not the stars that we're talking about right now. Those aren't the players that we expected to make a difference. When we first started having this conversation, it was Brooks and Bryson and Phil and DJ and all of these other rumor stars who were thinking about going. We're not having those conversations anymore. And so it's to the point now that the commissioner is worried about Robert Garrigus and Ian Poulter. Yeah. I think that's I mean, a very real threat. Is he really worried about it or is he, or is he just trying to prevent, I would think in, in Poulter's case in particular, uh, him sort of, lobbying other PGA Tour players like we'd seen Phil doing on the range over the past uh, year or so? Is he, is he trying to prevent him from recruiting other players over on his side, I guess would be the bigger concern. I don't think he particularly cares about Robert Garrick. Maybe he's just saying, hey, let's not open our mouth again for the next foreseeable, fu- for the foreseeable future. Maybe. But do you get on a plane to come all the way to New Orleans and have that conversation? I think the point I'm making is that yes. It's a very real threat that even though the commissioner and the PGA Tour want to move on, and he made that perfectly clear at the Players' Championship, this isn't moving on. And it goes to the conversation that you and I have had really over the last three weeks about this, that the players feel like they have a right here, and the PGA Tour is going to push back on that right. Understandably so. Like, you want to protect your house, and in this particular case, they're doing everything they can to protect their house. I just want it to get to, let's just call it four balls and take the base. And let's go from there. Because I think that's where the real conversation starts. And that's when you'll be covering lawsuits and court cases uh, until the end of time. 
Uh, we'll we, that was that that concludes our live golf discussion this week. We will have one next week. Uh, we'll also have one the week after that, um, and probably the week after that for the next I don't know four to five months or wherever we see where this thing is eventually going. Rex, I want to wrap it up. We've kept you on the podcast a little bit uh, too long anyway. DC, good food town, bad food town. What are they? What are they known for? Uh, well, car- crab cakes. So that's it. Yeah, it's, it's the old, you know, two things. You can't have crab cakes for crab six cakes. nights. Uh, I can't. I can definitely have crab cakes for one or two nights. Uh, there's actually a place. I'm staying at the Marriott Bethesda right off Cooks Hill Road. You know exactly where that is. And there's a couple places, right? Um, I guess that's Wisconsin, right? That's the main road? Yes, Wisconsin. So there's a couple of places we'll go to. And then uh, I believe Andrew Bradley, our producer, and I are going to go catch an Orioles game. You want to know why? Because I'm a glutton because for the, because the, And because the tickets are cheap, because no one wants to watch them. I haven't even looked. They, they might be giving away tickets for all I know. But it's been a long time since I've been to Camden. I'm looking forward to it. Who are they playing? Uh, I don't know who they got this week. I'd have to look it up. Does it really matter? I thought you were a diehard fan. You don't even know who they're playing this week? I, it's hard to be a diehard fan of the world. Did you not hear every part of that conversation? Uh, I did. I did, I did see uh, they did have SportsCenter. Uh, in the Bahamas, thankfully. I did see that they beat the Red Sox last week, which is probably more uh, than you know about your own uh, team. I'm looking forward, Rex. Thanks for asking, uh, since we are trying to uh, get barbecue sponsors uh, on board, and I will talk about grilling here. Uh, selfishly, I'm firing up uh, my bevy of grills. We got salmon. We got some spatchcock oh, chicken. We got some beef tips. Uh, I've got some beef cheeks. You ever heard of beef cheeks, Rex? They're supposed to be ab- they're supposed to be absolutely divine, uh, so I'm going to de- defrost those, and then I guess I need to start YouTubing how to actually cook them. Uh, they're like really thick looking steaks. They're supposed to be absolutely delicious. Maybe check back. Yeah, how will we check back on next week's podcast to see how my beef cheek uh, experiment sure, sure. goes? Any that, interesting that barbecue segment? It, it really could. Uh, any interesting barbecue mm-hmm. companies? Uh, please reach please reach out to uh, Rex or myself. Uh, on Twitter, we'd love to do uh, more on that. Uh, that is just what you call in the business a shameless plug. But Rex, uh, you enjoy the week uh, at the Wells Fargo Championship. You guys make sure to check out Rex uh, on Golf Central all week, including maybe if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we will be graced with his presence uh, on GolfChannel.com. If anything of note happens this week at TPC Potomac at Avenal Farm, if not, you can catch us uh, Wednesday on Writer's Block as well as the recap writer's block at the end of the week, either on Sunday or Monday. I'll be on the NCAA selection show. That sound you hear is me uh, slamming textbooks uh, and, and cranking through uh, some college coverage. Uh, looking forward to that show as well. But thank you guys for listening to this edition of the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. We'll talk to you next week where we will talk about Beef Cheeks. <laughs>